Hey, baby. Um, this will be another episode of this. Uh, obviously, not exactly in the same spot as I was before um, in the previous episodes, because before, in between this, I have read to you. So, but like you said, you don't really pay attention too much about what I'm reading, so it's not like it matters too much. So let's get into it. I'm still reading the coddling of the American mind, of course. Great untruth, you. The events of Evergreen illustrate just about everything we've talked about in this book so far. The early stages stages illustrate Burgess's three features of political witch hunts. The movement seemed to come out of nowhere. It was in response to triv- trivial provocation, a polite email sent to faculty listserv, and the provocation was interpreted as an attack on the entire Evergreen community. As the drama unfolded, it illustrated our fourth criterion, faculty and administrators who wanted to defend Weinstein were afraid to do so. And the protesting Evergreen students and the faculty and administrators who encouraged them repeatedly displayed all threes of the great untruths. For example, one professor who supported the protesters addressed some of her faculty colleagues in an angry monologue that included a line similar to the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. I am so tired. This shit is literally going to kill me. A student illustrated the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. At the large town hall meeting, when she used her own anxiety as evidence that something was very wrong at Evergreen, quote, I want to cry. I can't tell you how fast my heart is beating. I am shaking in my boots, unquote. And of course, the entire episode was an illustration of the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good and evil people. The protesting students and their faculty supporters engaged in a giant game of common enemy identity politics by interpreting a politically progressive college and its politically progressive leadership and faculty as exemplars of white supremacy in action. As one student who refused to join the protesters later put it while testifying before the college trustees, if you offer any kind of alternative viewpoint, you're the enemy. Evergreen State College is not typical, and the exception of the Milo Milo riot in UC Berkeley, its meltdown into anarchy in the spring of 2017, is more extreme than anything else that has happened in recent decades on, on an American college campus, as far as we know. We have presented its story in detail because it is a warning to everyone who cares about students or universities. The Evergreen story shows what is possible when political diversity is reduced to very very low levels. When the school's leadership is weak and easily intimidated, and when professors and administrators allow or or even encourage the propagation of the three great untruths. In sum, humans are tribal creatures who readily form groups to to compete with other groups, as we saw in chapter three. Sociologist Emil Durkheim's work illuminates the way those groups engage in rituals, including the collective punishment of deviance, to enhance their cohesion and solidarity. Cohesive and morally homogenous groups are prone to witch hunts, particularly when they experience a threat, whether from outside or from within. Witch hunts generally have four properties. They seem to come out of nowhere, they involve charges of crime against a collective, and offenses that lead to those charges are often trivial or fabricated. And people who know what the accused is innocent keep quiet, or in extreme cases, they join the mob. Some of the most puzzling campus events and trends since 2015 match the profile of a witch hunt. The campus protests at Yale, 
Claremont McKenna, and Evergreen all began as reactions to, poli to politely worded emails and all led to demands that the authors of the emails be fired. We repeat that the concerns that provide the context for a witch hunt may be valid, but in a witch hunt, the intended fears, intent, attendant fears are channeled in unjust and destructive ways. The new trend in 2017 for professors to join open letters denouncing their colleagues and demanding the retraction or condemnation of their work, as happened to Rebecca Tuvel, Amy Wax, and others, also fits this pattern. In all of these cases, colleagues of the accused were afraid to publicly stand up and defend them. Viewpoint diversity reduces the community's susceptibility to witch hunts, one of the most important kinds of viewpoint diversity. Diversity of political thought has declined substantially among both professors and students at American universities since the 1990s. These declines, combined with the rapidly escalating political polarization of the United States, which is our focus in the next chapter, may be part of the reason why the new culture of safetyism has spread rapidly since its emergence around 2013. This concludes part one of this part two of this book. In these two chapters, we examine some dramatic events that occurred on college campuses in the two years after we published our article in The Atlantic, laying out our concerns about cognitive distortions on campus. The new campus trends make a lot more sense once you understand the three great untruths and can spot them in action. In part three, we'll ask why and why now? Where did the three great untruths and the culture of safetyism come from? And why did they spread so quickly in the last few years? Part three, how did we get here? Chapter six, the polarization cycle. Quote, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, unquote. Isaac Newton's Third Law of Motion. We began this book with a presentation of three great untruths, ideas so out of tune with human flourishing that they harm anyone who embraces them. In part two, we narrated a variety of campus events that have attracted national and sometimes global attention, and we showed how some students and professors involved in these events seem to have embraced the, three, the great untruths. Now, in part three, we widen the lens and look at how we got here. We did a set of irrelated ir ideas, which we have called a culture of safetyism. Sweep through many universities between 2013 and 2017, students who graduated from college in 2012 generally tell us that they saw little evidence of these trends. Students who began college at some elite universities in 2013 or 2014 tell us they saw the new culture arrive over the course of their four years. What is going on? There is no simple answer, but in part three, we present six interacting explana expo explana explanatory threads. Rising political polarization and cross-party animosity. Rising levels of teen anxiety and depression. Changes in parenting practices and decline of free play. The growth of campus bureaucracy and a rising passion for justice in response to major national events. Combined with changing ideas about what justice requires, we believe that it is impossible to understand the state of higher education today without understanding all six. Before we present these trends, these threads, however, we must take we must make two points explicitly and empathetically. The first point is that there are different threads for different people. Part of the complexity of our story is that not all threads have influenced each person and group on campus equally. The rising political polarization in the United States 
in which many universities are increasingly seen as bastions of the left, has led to an increase in hostility and harassment from some off-campus right-wing individuals and groups. Some of these events qualify as hate crimes and are targeted especially at Jews and people of color. We discussed that thread, that thread in this chapter. Rising rates of teen depression and anxiety affect both boys and girls, but have hit young women particularly hard, as you'll see in Chapter 7. The rise in overprotective or helicopter parenting and the decline of free play, chapters 8 and 9, have negatively affected kids from wealthier families, mostly white and Asian, more than kids from working class or poor families. The increase in number of campus administrators, along with the scope of their duties, may be having an effect at all schools, chapter 10. But new ideas and stronger passions about social justice may matter most on campuses where students are more engaged politically, chapter 11. The second point is that this book, this is a book about good intentions gone awry. In all the six chapters in this part of the book, you'll read about people primarily acting from good or normal motivations. In most cases, the motive primarily motive is to help or protect children or people seen as vulnerable or victimized. But as we all know, the road to hell may be paved with good intentions. Our goal in part three is not to blame. It is to understand. Only by identifying and analyzing all six explanatory threads can we begin to talk about possible solutions as we do in part four. So basically what this is laying out, um, seeing as we're at, what, nine minutes, something like that now? <laughs> I'm just going to talk a little bit longer without reading because I don't know how long this next part actually will last. It looks like it might last pretty long, seemingly. Yeah, it, it seems like it will last pretty long. That might actually be, oh, nah, maybe could be an uh, entire thing about itself. Um, but it seems like, actually, it's going to be discussing how these... How oh, these collective social pressures have been making people more likely to be jumpy and act out on things they see as hate that not, aren't res really, really hate because you have to look at intentions above all. So first of all, in Chapter 7, which I believe this is actually Chapter 6 now, so coming up soon, it actually will be discussing depression anxiety um, and how that has, uh, as it says, hits young women particularly hard. And so we'll see how that affects that. Then I'll talk about helicopter parenting, um, which actually I'm actually looking forward to. That seems really interesting how overprotective parenting has hurt people's mental health, kind of, in a way. Um, it's very interesting. And chapter 10 will be about the increase of number of campus administrators. So it means administrators having more of a role or maybe being more present. I'm not exactly sure what that will be. Um, and then the next one, last chapter 11, which might be the last chapter of this book, but I don't think so. Um, let me check. I don't think it's the last chapter, but I'm not sure. Last chapter may actually be, no, the last chapter is chapter 13, and that's about advising universities about how to be better. Um, but chapter 11 will be about um, overall increase in social justice passions, it seems, and how students are politically engaged and how that may lead to this also. That's what I'm guessing. But I'm most things that are the we could actually apply to our lives here seem to be in Chapter 7, Chapter 8, and 9. 
which talk about uh, helicopter parenting. And then um, chapter seven is depression, anxiety, and how that's affecting people. I mean, this is book. This is a psychology. This is a psychology book about Paul. So that could be really interesting to learn about. Um, but it seems like we reached twelve minutes. Which I mean, if you're not asleep by this time, just hit repeat, I guess. Um, or if there's another episode after this, I'm really still ready. Then do that. Um, but I hope this has helped you rest. <laughs> I hope this has helped you close your eyes maybe a little bit and get some sleep that you definitely need. Um, yeah, I hope this has been helpful. <laughs> Sleep well, baby. See you in the next one.